Today's episode of Onward to Victory is brought to you by WCScreens.com. Like your fighting Irish in the college football world, they are the gold standard of the screen printing and embroidery industry. For wholesale pricing, nationwide shipping, look no further than my pal Tony and the rest of his crew at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Man, who doesn't love Notre Dame Stadium? That house that Rockney built. Frankly, there are few places like it, but today, let's talk a bit about the football facility that predated Notre Dame Stadium, Cartier Field, the university's first legitimate athletic facility, which was graced by the presence of numerous Irish football legends between 1899 through 1928. I have two words for the team's success at Cartier. Mind and boggling. Grab those leather helmets and buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter and yes sir, I am the host of this enterprise. Welcome to episode number 56, the very first offering of the year of our Lord 2022. And I thank you kindly for electing to spend a bit of time with me here today, wherever you may be from. And to remind you, it is geographical diversity which really ties us Irish fans together. Obviously, the love for this university and football team spills well beyond the border of the Hoosier State. And to speak to this, over the course of last year, now 2021, firmly in the rearview mirror, listeners have checked in from 48 states and nearly two dozen countries. While again, this is a testament to the power and fervency of the Notre Dame fandom, I would also like to think folks tune in to hear great stories and learn more about the history of our beloved program. So while the 2021 season has sadly drawn to a close, and what a roller coaster of a campaign it proved to be, I am happy to report that Onward to Victory will be providing all you loyal sons and daughters of Aaron a boatload of Notre Dame content to tide you over this off season. Actually, if all goes according to plan, quite a bit more content this offseason, but I'll give you more details in the show wrap. Now, you may have noticed that we are now a little over three minutes into this episode, and I have not yet mentioned the January 1st New Year's Day Fiesta Bowl yet. That and a myriad of other topics will be discussed in some future aforementioned programming. But as I record and edit this, we're about two days out from the game, And I'll be honest, the sting is real, it's still here, it still feels very fresh. So I want you all to think of this episode as something of a palate cleanser, if you will. Let's get our minds off of that particular game and on to something else as we vault into this off-season. But rest assured, we will be discussing that January 1st Fiesta Bowl soon. 
Now, I have what I think is a really nice offering for today's episode, and yet another critical entry, not only into the show archives, but let's call it like it is, into the public record here, but that is the history of Cartier Field. That name probably rings a bell for a good number of Notre Dame fans, and I won't say most Notre Dame fans because I'm not sure that's true, but there probably is at least a fair amount of name recognition that goes along with that name. But today, we are going to be giving this facility the treatment it deserves. And I think some of you are going to be shocked by parts of what you hear. I know I was anyway. But before we launch in, how about some recognition for those who donate to the show monetarily and keep the Subway alumni train on the tracks, if you will. Of course, they would be the consensus All-Americans, that special sect of show listeners who donate monetarily, again, to the program. These are Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana, long-standing supporters of the show, gold and blue through and through. And as you picked up in the show intro, the 2021 season sponsor is... WCScreens.com, the leader in screen printing and embroidery. And new to the ranks of the All-Americans is none other than author and friend of mine, Will Fuller. Will wrote the book, The Forever Year, about George Gipp, which we discussed in length during episode 48. Go back and give it a spin. It's actually the most listened to episode in show history. And consider picking up Will's book, again, titled The Forever Year about George Gipp and Irish Trapeer's relationship over the course of the final year of Gipp's life. I simply can't recommend it enough, and I would like to thank Will once again for joining the ranks of the All-Americans. All right, so as a quick aside, this was an episode I wanted to do way back in November of 2019. This was my original idea for episode number 11. So here I am, I guess 45 episodes later, getting the job done. But the reason I didn't complete it then was because while doing some preliminary research on Cartier Field, I got a little wrapped up in trying to figure out who scored the first Irish touchdown at Notre Dame Stadium. That proved to be fullback jumping Joe Savoldi. Now, once I started digging on Savoldi, I was kind of hooked, and he became episode number 11, and I guess I never returned to the idea until kind of recently here, but quick shout out to Jumping Joe and episode 11, by the way. So that's a quick origin story of how we got here today, but let's get into it. Whether you're sitting at home at your desk, in your car, have your earbuds in at work, I thank you once again, buckle in. While the University of Notre Dame, as far as structures are concerned, has grown quite immensely, even in the past couple decades, Notre Dame Stadium remains at the center of campus. Uh, Quite literally, actually. If you were to pull a campus map, you'll actually see that is exactly the case. So next time you're on campus, or even if you can't make it to campus and you just want to pull up an aerial photograph, I want you to think about and envision something. Now, there is a rather expansive quad that comprises the Hesburgh Library often called Touchdown Jesus, the reflecting pool and the walkways that lead you directly to the main entrance of Notre Dame Stadium, the Rockney Gate, if you will. So that whole area, 
which for many people is probably their favorite spot on campus, but where the Hesburgh Library sits and the reflecting pool is, and again, in those walkways leading up to Notre Dame Stadium. That is the exact area of the former Cartier Field. As many of you may be aware, the football team began play at Notre Dame Stadium in 1930. They famously played the entire 1929 season away from South Bend. They opted to play their home games at Soldier Field in Chicago. This was while the stadium, nicknamed the house that Rockney built, was being constructed. I will note just for the record books, the lack of a true home stadium didn't seem to bother the boys much. They went on ahead and won a national championship anyway that season. But there was a whole lot of history and lore in the program that happened before the stadium opened, Notre Dame Stadium, that is, in 1930. For example, fullback Lewis Red Salmon became Notre Dame's first Walter Camp All-American in 1903. Rockney's entire playing career and about 85% of his head coaching tenure predated Notre Dame Stadium. How about the exploits of George Gipp and the Four Horsemen? They all called Cartier Field their home turf. What I think is really cool is that to trace the origins of the facility, you literally have to go back to the beginning of Notre Dame football. In November of 1887, when the team lined up to play their first ever game against the University of Michigan, there was a certain George Cartier under center at quarterback for Notre Dame. And it just so happened that George's older brother, Warren, had graduated from Notre Dame that spring with a civil engineering degree. But let's put a pin in that for a minute. Between 1887 and 1898, the football team kind of meandered around campus. There was really no need for a stadium at this time because, well, there weren't droves of people coming out to watch the football team. In fact, the school didn't even hire a head coach until 1894. That was Mr. James L. Morrison, a former University of Michigan player. When he arrived on campus to coach the team, part-time of course, he earned $40 a week for his two-week contract. Think about that, particularly as we have wrestled around with a head coaching transition ourselves here in recent months. But the state of the Notre Dame team when he arrived greatly disturbed him. He actually wrote a friend that, quote, I arrived here yesterday morning, and I found about as green a pack of football players as ever donned a jacket. And I'm afraid it will be a very hard matter to get up a good team. We play our first game next Saturday with Hillsdale. I am afraid we will be swiped mercilessly, as I have hard set to train, but all they want to do is smoke. And when I told them that they were to run and get up some wind, they thought I was rubbing it in on them. Why, yesterday I started them to chopping on the ball and one big strong cuss remarked that it was too much like work, end quote. So I guess you get a good sense of how early Notre Dame football players viewed their commitment to the team. Or I guess I suppose how casual of a pursuit playing football at Notre Dame was at this time. What, between smoking cigarettes and complaining about doing actual drills? 
But to underscore this point, historian Murray Sperber, who I use quite frequently on this show, said that, quote, at the turn of the century, Notre Dame football was an informal, student-based game, end quote. He cites an example during the 1899 season, which the football team opened with a game against Englewood High School. Now, it wasn't uncommon during this era for college football teams to collide with high school teams or local semi-pro or amateur teams. And while a story was written about the game for the school newspaper, a final score wasn't even reported, which that just feels absolutely crazy. So while this may feel like a bit too much window dressing, or if you think I've gone off on a tangent and this has nothing to do with Cartier Field, I am sharing this to accentuate just how much it meant to the athletic landscape on campus to have a new, bona fide facility. In 13 years of playing football and a few decades playing baseball, there had been little support from the school's administration for athletics. Through at least a portion of the 1899 season, the football team had played on a patch of grass in front of Brownson Hall, which was a student dormitory. There really wasn't any seating to speak of. Spectators would just line around the field and occasionally make their way on the field. But it was in 1897, while the team was under the direction of Frank E. Herring, which be on the lookout for an episode about him in 2022, but the team couldn't even recoup travel expenses, nor could they really furnish the players with any proper equipment, which is really saying something because there really wasn't much equipment then. But when you look back, the program was probably in peril of shutting down. Notre Dame was not an athletic, academic, nor financial powerhouse that we know them to be today. Of course, they had no athletic director, and the school struggled. And a few poor years of finances, in all reality, could have crippled the university. Notre Dame president at this time, Father Andrew Morrissey, was incredibly budget conscientious, which, again, to be president of the university at this time, you kind of had to be, but he probably wouldn't have thought twice about eliminating the program back in the 1890s if it didn't show more signs of sustainability. But, though he wasn't a huge athletic booster himself, Father Morrissey did recognize the infusion of school spirit that athletics, notably football and baseball, provided. According to the school newspaper, he began to write alumni for support as early as 1897. According to Notre Dame's alumni magazine, quote, most graduates who received the written plea ignored it. A few did send money, but it wasn't even enough to cover the postage for the mailing, end quote. Yikes. But... <laughs> Father Morrissey realized that asking for operational monies to support the day-in, day-out expenses of the athletics department was probably a tough ask. So, he went with a much bigger plan. He would launch what is known as a capital campaign, which is when an organization or university sets out to raise a significant amount of money for a specific project. Often the money raised is for the acquisition, construction, or renovation of a building. If anyone listening have worked on a college campus or in fundraising, you're probably nodding your heads right now. But you remember how I mentioned that at Brownson Hall Field, spectators would just kind of line around the perimeter of the playing field to watch the games? 
Well, Morrissey figured that if he could raise the money to build a legitimate enclosed facility, folks would actually pay an entrance fee. And what's more, you could sell sponsorships to local South Bend businesses or corporate sponsorships for businesses owned by alumni. He and the rest of the university administration reasoned that this would take care of the cash flow issue. But there was a problem. Not only did the university not have the funds to build the stadium without significant help, they also didn't have the land on which the stadium could be built. That was a big problem, really. But not to be deterred, Morrissey wrote to some of the most powerful and wealthy Notre Dame alumni in mid-1899. Included in this group was none other than Warren A. Cartier, class of 1887, and the older brother of Notre Dame's quote-unquote first quarterback, George Cartier. Of note, Warren also played football at Notre Dame, but it would have been before the recognized 1887 founding date. So when Warren played, it would have been more of an on-campus club sport at that time. But he was also a member of the rowing team during his time as a student, so he was athletics-minded. Now, Warren and George just happened to be the sons of 19th century lumber tycoon Antoine Cartier. So don't think, though, that Warren was resting on his family laurels, so to speak. When Father Morrissey wrote him, he was a wildly successful businessman in his own right in the lumber and transit industries, and he was even acting as mayor of Ludington, Michigan at the time. So on June 27, 1899, Morrissey must have been elated to receive the following correspondence from Cartier, quote, I have thought for some time that as Notre Dame was getting so interested in athletics, she should have an enclosed field, and have wondered many a time why the question was not taken up, end quote. According to a 2014 article in the Alumni Magazine, quote, Cartier, the son of one of the nation's first lumber barons, did more than wonder. He took up the need himself. He bought 10 acres on the east side of campus. And he and his wife, Kate Dempsey Cartier, immediately turned the deed over to Notre Dame. Warren then sent lumber from his company for a fence and a grandstand, end quote. With the needed land and also resources, they were now off and moving with the project. So not only would the facility play host to football games in the fall, but the plans also included a baseball diamond and a quarter-mile track for both running and bicycling. The grandstand, which sat adjacent to the football field, could comfortably seat 500 people. That number would, of course, grow over the future decades, but in 1899, that was a pretty good amount of folks to attend a sporting event on Notre Dame's campus. In many respects, this was truly a state-of-the-art, multi-purpose facility. And again, make no mistake, it was very multi-purpose. I feel like I have to reiterate this because a lot of times when you think of a facility that has both a football field and a baseball field, it is assumed that it was really one big field for football that was used in the fall and then baseball in the spring. Baseball would just be played on top of the football field. But not so with Cartier Field. In fact, there was both 
a baseball field and a football field with their own respective grandstand. And I mentioned the 500-person football grandstand, which spanned between roughly the 25-yard lines, but there was also another grandstand that sat behind the backstop of the baseball field and another smaller one near first base. The quarter-mile track surrounded the baseball field and a 220-yard straightaway track actually physically separated the two fields. And if I'm not doing a satisfactory job of explaining that, uh, my feelings won't be hurt. Jump over to the show Facebook page. I actually found original diagram uh, that was put in the school newspaper, and I, I'll put it up on the Facebook page. But anyway, the October 14th, 1899 issue of the school newspaper formally celebrated Cartier with a tribute article which included blown-up pictures of both Warren and his wife, Kate, which I thought was pretty cool. The article reported that, quote, in late years, it became evident to the faculty and students of the university that the old system of conducting sports on an open field was wholly unsatisfactory. It threw the whole burden of supporting our teams chiefly on that portion of the student body that resides in Brownson and Soren Halls. Even among these, there were many fellows that were present at all games without ever giving a cent toward defraying expenses. Generous support from the faculty was all that saved the association from going into bankruptcy, end quote. In appreciation of their largest benefactor, the university formally named the facility, yes, Cartier Field. In appreciation of Warren and his family's contributions to the university, Notre Dame sent him an embossed testimonial, naturally on blue and gold parchment. As reported in the November 4th, 1899 issue of the school newspaper, it read, Greetings from the University of Notre Dame. We are grateful for the generosity which promoted you to bestow to your alma mater an enclosed field to be used in perpetuity for the athletic games and contests of the students. The University of Notre Dame offers you this assurance of thankfulness. The gift will be known forever as Cartier Athletic Field, and your name will be inscribed in the list of eminent benefactors of Notre Dame. By your generous gift, you have earned the gratefulness of the university and of the students, present and future, to whom you have set a wholesome and conspicuous example by your loyalty to your alma mater and your solicitude for her welfare. So the facility began play in 1899 with the football team playing no fewer than four home games at the facility while it was actually still being built. One of those was the aforementioned game against Englewood High School, but the field was formally commemorated on May 12, 1900. The very first events held at the newly commemorated facility were, again, not a football game, but actually a track and field championship and a baseball game. But by 1900, Cartier Field was the permanent home for Notre Dame football. Now, are you ready to have your mind blown? So Notre Dame has always seemingly possessed a strong home field advantage. Recently, until a loss this year, the Irish had won 26 consecutive games at Notre Dame Stadium. It was the longest in the nation at that time. So imagine a home unbeaten streak that lasted 23. 
No, not 23 games, but rather 23 seasons. Absolutely incredible. After losing to Wabash 5-0 at home in October of 1905, the Irish wouldn't lose a game at Cartier Field until November 17, 1928 against Carnegie Tech, which also happened to be the last football game played at the stadium. Unbelievable. So, Irish fans, between those two games, Notre Dame had a home record of 90 wins, no losses, and three ties. So that spans the entire playing career of Knut Rockney, damn near his entire coaching career too. Gip, the Four Horsemen, the first claimed national championship in 1924, plus unclaimed national titles in 1919, 1920, and 1927. Just absolutely awesome. They never lost at home. And probably getting a little too cute with it here, but who cares? The Irish's home unbeaten streak spanned the presidencies of Theodore Roosevelt, Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, Warren Harding, and Calvin Coolidge. So when we think of the ethos of Notre Dame football, it was not only born, but matured greatly on Cartier Field. And really saying matured is putting it quite mildly. Notre Dame football at Cartier Field is almost a self-contained history in its own right. So many intersections between what we think of with Notre Dame legends and program lore is with Cartier Field. And it was also home to the baseball team too, as mentioned. There were some damn good baseball players who suited up on Cartier. So just as a quick note, even after Notre Dame Stadium was finished in 1930, the baseball as well as the track and field teams, continued to use Cartier until the late 1940s. And in going through the record books, dozens of future major leaguers played baseball at the facility, which Notre Dame actually has a sneakily decent baseball history as well. But how about we tie it back to football? Do you know who the captain of the 1943 baseball team was? Again, who played their home games at Cartier Field? That would be Notre Dame's first Heisman Trophy winner, Angelo Bertelli. So when I really stop and think about it, Notre Dame Stadium, whether I'm inside for a ball game or just walking around it during the offseason, is one of my very favorite places on earth. And there's no exaggeration nor hyperbole attached to that one either. But when critically examining the history of Notre Dame football, I mean, really Notre Dame athletics and really the philanthropic history at Notre Dame, one cannot gloss over the importance of Cartier Field and its benefactor, Warren Cartier. And I'll be right back with Show Wrap. All 
All right. Well, how about I hope you enjoyed that little offering about Cartier Field and really, again, just the sheer significance of what that meant for the football program, the athletics programs as a whole. But really think about it. Eventually, the school was really able to build off its athletic successes to become much more rigorous academic institution. I think that's well spelled out in better places than this, I suppose. But, you know, for the first few decades of the football's rise, you know, across the college football landscape, Notre Dame still was not considered a very academically rigorous school. But the school itself was able to parlay the successes in the athletic department into building the academic reputation and esteem of the university, which then was parlayed, I guess, into a much lower acceptance rate, which is one of the marks of a really great academic institution, typically. So, but when you really think about it, what's at the core of that? Well, the growth of the football program, of course, but what was responsible for the growth of the football program? Well, I think you have to point to Cartier Field, which is when Notre Dame started taking the sport and its place in the state and the regional and the national college football landscape. So again, you could point to Cartier Field as kind of the genesis of what we know and recognize the university for today. So I thought that was really interesting, and there is quite a bit out there on Cartier Field, but I figure it was be good to kind of tie it all together and give it to you, hopefully in a very digestible, oh, 30 minutes or so. But if you haven't already, make sure you go back and listen to the last couple offerings from the show. So two episodes ago, episode 54, I did the third edition of the Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish, and that was about the first black quarterback in program history. That was Cliff Brown, who was an era Parsegian era quarterback. So in that episode, not only do I tell you as much as I could find, I guess, about Cliff, but also why, from a sociological aspect and just a historic aspect, why the position of quarterback being played by a black man is important. So I tried to tie that one together. That was two episodes ago, episode number 54. And then episode 55, this last episode, which came out in mid-December, right before the Christmas holiday, was about the Brian Kelly era and how we're going to kind of remember it and think about it and historically contextualize it. I think all these were questions that were really important and that needed to be answered and frankly will continue to be answered as time marches on. I know it's going to be really hard for him to ever step foot on Notre Dame's campus again and frankly I wouldn't be surprised if he's never invited back. Uh, I thought about his daughter who will be graduating from Notre Dame here in May, and I doubt he ends up coming back for that. But I really tried to remove the emotion from it and just look at it from a much more nuanced approach. At least I tried to. So go back and listen to that one. That was episode 55. So episode 57, the one that is upcoming I believe I am going to be tackling, well, for episode 57, I believe I'll be going back to 1957. And Notre Dame head football coach, former Notre Dame head football coach, Terry Brennan, he died in September of last year, and he lived a long life. He was 93 years old, but he was the head football coach from 1954 to 1958. And while not the most successful head coach, still almost universally beloved 
uh, among Notre Dame fans. But he compiled a record of 32-18 and 18 during his time. So he coached 50 games, and he won basically 64% of them, so just under two-thirds, which, again, depending on the era of Notre Dame football, that might be kind of good. But, however, at that time, you know, following Frank Leahy, that was kind of tough sledding. But, however, though his teams didn't win as consistently as his predecessors, he did. And his team, I should say, pulled off one of the most improbable wins in Notre Dame history and one of the most signature Notre Dame wins in their history. And that's, I suppose, saying a lot. So one of those 32 victories was a huge one. So I'm thinking that's where we're going to head for episode 57, back to 1957, and commemorate a coach who has just passed away not too terribly long ago in the process. And then after that, hopefully we're going to be doing a state of the program episode post-Fiesta Bowl. This is where we'll really dive into Fiesta Bowl analysis and all of that, but also uh, post-signing day. So we're going to try to lump all that in post-signing day, post-Fiesta Bowl, looking forward to the spring game in April. That'll be in early February and I will be having a special guest on for that one, a guest who looks to be joining the uh, the team here very shortly. So uh, more to come on that, but that'll be coming down the pike here coming in the next month. And of course, thank you not only for tuning into this episode, but also bearing with me as I am like trying to shake whatever is going on. Uh, the weather here in Indiana has been kind of erratic, and I think it is really kind of playing a number on my allergies. So as I was editing this episode I couldn't help but realize I sound a little different but uh, thanks for bearing with me I do appreciate that well I reckon it's about that time that I hang the cleats up at least for today I'd like to thank the consensus all Americans once again Michael Finan of Rutherford New Jersey Weston Painter of Fort Wayne Indiana and Brad Glazier of Williamsburg Indiana season sponsor wcscreens.com and new consensus all American my friend Will Fuller who is the author of the forever year a book about George Gipp and just to kind of clear something up here, some of you may be a little bit confused thinking, Alex, the guy you had on your episode earlier, his name was Bill Fuller, not Will Fuller. But yes, yeah, so it's true. Uh, Bill is Will, same person. So he prefers to go by Will. So that's exactly what I call him. So Will Fuller, kind of like the former Irish wide receiver. And not for nothing, our Will Fuller is also a Notre Dame graduate as well. And a special thank you to Joseph Rakish, whose song Knut Rockne serves as this show's theme song. Go find it wherever you listen to your music. Knut Rockne, Joseph Rakish. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. That way you are alerted to every single new episode. And don't hesitate to jump over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. If you yourself would like to become a consensus All-American, then jump over to paypal.me slash Onward to Victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash Onward to Victory podcast if you'd like to dedicate monthly support to the show. All is super appreciated. And if you're not in a position where you can donate monetarily, just keep liking, listening, and sharing this podcast. It is all greatly, greatly appreciated. And with that, I think I am going to sign off. This has been episode 56 of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Irish.